Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and I'm extremely excited for this week's episode with the one and only Charlie Engel. Charlie is an epic, epic human. He went from addiction to running across the Saharan Desert. He literally ran the equivalent of two marathons a day for over a hundred days in the world's toughest terrain and is sharing the insights garnered through that achievement for all of you so that you can apply similar principles to your own life. I think you'll get a huge amount of value from this episode. I absolutely loved our conversation. And Charlie's now actually on a new expedition where he's looking to go from the lowest point on Earth, um, diving deep into the Red Sea, to the highest point on Earth atop Everest. I love talking to people about expeditions and the metaphors that they provide in terms of our lives. And I can't wait to share this episode with you. This episode is brought to you by two of my favorite companies. The first is Lifecycle. Lifecycle produces extraordinarily high-grade mushroom tonics. Now they have lion's mane, shiitake, cordyceps, reishi, and turkey tail. I use them on a daily basis. Um, you know, mushrooms have profound benefits, which I've spoken about in previous episodes. And if you want to delve deeply into the science and efficacy of each mushroom, you can check out my Mind Key episode on the magic of mushrooms with Julian Mitchell, the founder of Lifecycle. And we go deep into the efficacy of um, each of the mushrooms. Mushrooms have been with us for, you know, for, well, I mean, millennia. And they've been used as adaptogens and medicines in many forms of medicine, Chinese medicine. They're having a bit of a resurgence in the West. And I incorporate them into my day-to-day life. Uh, you know, I take lion's mane uh, in the morning with my coffee. It helps with co- uh, cognitive optimization. I also use reishi when I'm getting ready to relax uh, in the evening, sort of help with my circadian rhythm. And um, I really think you can get a lot of benefit. If you want to delve deep into the science, check them out. It's lifecycle, L-I-F-E-C-Y-K-E-L.com. And if you put in Peak Mind 20 uh, at checkout, you get 20% off your order. I recommend their Biohacker Pack, which is all five of their tinctures. They also have an amazing mushroom burger. Uh, really recommend checking them out. Again, it's lifecycle, L-I-F-E-C-Y-K-E-L.com, Peak Mind 20 at checkout. This episode is also brought to you by ButcherBox. For those of you out there that uh, eat meat, it's important that you have humanely raised, high-quality meat. And, you know, I was a vegetarian for about 14 years and then went to a doctor who said, um, based on my unique sort of blood type and uh, profile that I should incorporate a bit of very high quality meat into my diet. And I know that many people live in sort of a food desert where they don't have access to like a Whole Foods or a, a high quality source for their organic foods. Um, and I'm a fan of ButcherBox because they have basically uh, a meat subscription that delivers high quality meat you can trust, 100% grass fed and pasture raised beef free-range organic chicken, heritage-bred pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, directly to your door. If you're going to eat meat, I think it's important to know that it's uh, humanely raised and high quality. 
So they're running a promotion as we speak. Uh, if you, uh, on your first order, you get $20 off as well as uh, two packs of ground beef and two bacons when you put in the code PEAKMIND. Um, and I really recommend you check them out. ButcherBox, B-U-T-C-H-E-R-B-O-X.com. They don't use any antibiotics or hormones ever. And they're, it's basically natural, wholesome, um, you know, Meat can be a great source, uh, especially the salmon of omega-3s, vitamins, minerals, um, essential for your health. Obviously, uh, there's different ways to go about diet, and many people have different thoughts. But if you're going to eat meat, uh, make sure that it's uh, humanely raised and high quality. Butcherbox.com, peak mind at checkout, and you get a nice discount and some bonuses on your first order. And without further ado, it's my great pleasure to introduce the one, the only, Charlie Angle. I'm here with my man Charlie Angle. Charlie, thank you for being here. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah, me too. So um, we met uh, at my dear friend Craig Clemens' house, but I had seen you speak previously at uh, World Summit, and I was really moved uh, by your story. Particularly, there's obviously the, the profound feat of doing something no one in the world has ever done before, but especially inspired by where you came from. Can you start by giving us a little bit of your backstory in terms of, um, you know, what you went through with addiction? Yeah, I mean, first of all, thanks for having me. It's, uh, by the way, beautiful place. Love having the beach. I can actually still hear the waves. I mean, so, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that was Welcome, like, baby. I almost didn't come in. I just went <laughs> no, but I, uh, you know, my story of, of addiction is not particularly uncommon they're they're kind of all the same yeah. <laughs> this deep dive down into some pretty miserable places uh, for me it might have looked a little different uh, I went to college as a 17 year old freshman I got there uh, thinking I was the man and realized that there were 4,000 other freshmen who had all the same qualifications yeah and pretty quickly I got lost in uh, in this drinking place and I found out that I was actually I was good at something drinking like, <laughs> I could drink a lot I could drink more than anybody else wow. and uh, and it it just led me down this path for uh, into cocaine also for about 12 years and it was I mean it was actually just you don't see it coming but it's incremental and one step at a time and the next thing you know you're you know you're way over your head and so I was always the top salesman at whatever company I worked for. I was, you know, I got married, I bought a house and cars and, and it was this never ending need to try to, you know, balance my crazy, offensive, terrible behavior on this side with overachieving on this side. Hmm. And I always said that the, uh, you know, the boss won't fire the top salesman. And uh, that turned out absolutely not to be true. Actually. So, <laughs> Um, so when I turned 29, my first son was born, yeah. and uh, I thought, finally, you know, finally, I, uh, I'm going to quit because I don't want my son growing up in this kind of an atmosphere. Uh, I had I had been exposed to a lot of that as a kid myself, and I, I knew I didn't want it for him. And holding this little baby, I felt like love and acceptance and things that, as an addict, I thought. I wasn't entitled to and that I was just broken and uh, now I had all these feelings and so for the first time really in my life I was like strong and determined that that was it hmm. 
And a couple of months later, you know, there I am in the hood again on a six day binge, totally like unexplainable. And, um, you know, I'm on the ground watching the police go through my car and there's a couple bullet holes in the car, you know, put there during this, this crazy six day run. And, and, uh, in the midst of all of that, I had this really amazing, uh, epiphany of sorts, a clear thought in the midst of all this addiction. And that was just simply that, you know, my son can't save me. You know, nobody, no one else is coming to save me. And I'd spent a lot of years looking for some sort of outside um, energy impetus to like force me to stop. And most addicts who are clean understand that a job, a spouse, like none of those things is actually going to stop you, mm. you know, until you make the decision to do it yourself. And what, what led you to that? What was the ultimate catalyst where you had that sort of moment of reckoning? Well, sitting there on the ground watching the police search my car, I'll never forget, uh, this cop actually reached under the driver's seat and pulled out a, a, a crack pipe. Hmm. And, you know, he turns around and like looks at me and I'm sitting on the ground. He's, he's shaking his head in this very, um, you know, in this, this damning way, looking at me uh, almost as in disappointment. And uh, like, any normal, even a remotely rational person would have thought, oh shit, I'm in some serious trouble now. Yeah. And all I could think was like, so that's where I put that. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, it's like, and it, and, and it was, I, I like to make light of it because it's, it's such a, a twisted thing. And I mean, I knew in that moment, I mean, that truly was a, it was a bottom, but a, again, as any, addict, especially a, a clean one, will tell you, it's a series of bottoms. You think you're there, and then you're not. And you think you're there, and then you're not. And then you think, and I mean, it continues on and on. And if you're lucky enough to survive, which actually most don't, then, you know, you get to figure out how to, how to build a life. And I, you know, I basically went that night. I mean, I made a decision to change. I'm like, this is finally it. I have to choose between living and dying. And I chose, and I like to say, I chose running. And, you know, that night I went to a meeting, an AA meeting, and the next morning I got up and I went for a run. Wow. And I ran every day for the next three years, and I went to a meeting every day for three years. And, and doing those two things every day without missing a day basically changed my life, yeah. you know, because I, <clears throat> I knew that, that short of some other, there was no other miracle. Miracles aren't, you know, generally speaking, those don't, there's no instantaneous body change that happens or mental change you know you just have to do it and I, I grew up I mean just like with the work that you do I think this is a relevant point you know <laughs> I grew up with a mother I was an only child and I grew up with a mother who was amazing and brilliant and wonderful but she was you know 19 years old when I was born and like you know as I as I learned to sort of think of it I was like lovingly neglected as I grew up you know lots of love and it was the 60s so it was you know peace and love and and she was a writer and a theater person and yeah you know, I like to say that she she taught me how to think but not what to think mm -hmm. and I think that that really set the stage for um, who I've become today which I hope is a is a pretty decent you know much different person than the addict in my 20s yeah so so it 
if, if, if you will, you, you really had this belief that the birth of your son, because it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that that was a point at which you thought, okay, that would be like an epiphany and like your life would shift. Yeah. Because I, I think it's highly relatable. I think many of us think if only this happens, then, then this, right? Yeah. Like oh, so many times we look at something as a point of salvation or of happiness, whether it be funds or a partner or a future child. Yeah. And you had a direct reckoning where it was, you know, who you were being was still who you were being, even with even with the child. So, what happened on that fateful day where this police officer then finds this crack pipe? Like, did you wind up going to prison? Like, what, what, what happened? Nothing. No, no. They let I, you go? Yeah, I walked away. I mean, the fact of the matter is, well, if you really want to know the truth of that, uh, because I think it's, well, it's not provocative for provocative sake, it's the truth. If I had been, you know, I was a 29-year-old middle-class white guy driving a decent car, nothing fancy, a Toyota something or other, and had I been a 29-year-old black man in the same neighborhood, I guarantee you I would have been off to jail and probably in prison because there was every every single bit of, uh, you know, for everything from paraphernalia to, um, I have to tell you, there's actually a funnier part of this story, which I really, it's funny, I never tell this part, I don't know why, but I actually, and this is what addicts do sometimes, so I loaned my car to my to the dealer, and this is just a person I didn't know, I was in a city I wasn't familiar with, this happened to me all the time because I traveled a lot, and I would, I would, you know, I would just go find somebody that would become my connection for that bin right so it's this african-american woman and she's the person doing this now anyway finally you know money starts to run out that becomes pretty apparent and that one last you know run here's my last two hundred dollars you know go go score again and come back of course she doesn't come back <laughs> right so i report my own car stolen because that's what ad that's the way addicts brains like this is a good idea i'm going to call the police <laughs> And um, you know, ultimately they, you know, they come to me. There's the car, you know. So, truth be told, the way it panned out, they couldn't actually prove that any of the paraphernalia or any of the nonsense having to do with the car was actually because of me, because I actually reported it stolen. Even though, and and that person didn't get in trouble either. I mean, they abandoned the car, and it, so nobody else went to jail either for that. So you got out of jail. You got a jail out of get out of jail free card. Totally, and yeah. I mean, it's just. But that that was again. That that is um, because again, this is a lot of stuff that you talk about. You know, that was an experience of being white in America. Hmm. To be honest, hmm. I mean, because that doesn't happen if you're not. No. Yeah, you got you had an experience <clears throat> of, of privilege. Indeed. Yeah. Well. It, so let me fast forward just a little bit. So you so you had this period of addiction. You found running, and you found the discipline in running every day. Mm -hmm. um, what's what's in, it, what, it, what came what came up for me as you were talking was Jocko Willink talks about you know there's freedom in discipline, and it sounded like, if I may, and I don't want to project, but it sounded like you started to find more freedom in the discipline of this new practice. What's what what start what started to happen for you as you undertook this practice of running? Yeah, no, that's a really good way to put it because it, it, it was that discipline that I lacked mm -hmm. and that I needed. And I also found out the, the combination of like you know, running saved my life, mm -hmm. like no doubt in my mind. But then running actually gave me a life mm -hmm. like so it, it gave me something else to do. 
It gave me um, a posse, a, a fellowship other than AA to be around. I mean, I was doing both, but I, I found that for me, I needed both. Mm. I needed more than just, you know, one thing. Yeah. And um, otherwise, uh, I just didn't feel complete. So running was a way to um, burn off some of that energy. And I, I, I sort of think of it as a... Um, it's almost like a roulette wheel, yeah. you know, normally there's only one ball. Yeah. Like for me, my, my brain felt like I had, there's all these slots and I had a ball for every slot. So when you spun the damn thing, it was just like, ah! it was crazy. <laughs> but then as the balls would say, you know, if I'm out running, yeah. every ball finds a spot yeah. and it would settle down at least for a little while. And I would feel calm and I would feel peaceful and that would be there while I was running and for a little while after and you know and I, I mean look I had friends who, who called me out and said hey look you know you, you run every day I ran like 30 marathons in that first three years so people were like you know yeah clearly you have that whole addiction thing under <laughs> right. Right? And you like, transferred from one yeah, to no problem. slightly like, healthier hopefully yeah, yeah well but I mean Anything could be done in an unhealthy way, right. and and I, I had to listen to what they were saying, sort of. I had to like at least take it into account, and it took a while to figure out that, uh, you know, addiction is all about um, hiding, mm. and and being invisible, and like feeling nothing. That's the goal of addiction. Mm. I mean, really, in many ways, is to not feel anything, or if you do, you know, you drink or drug it away. And running is the exact opposite. Like, there's no hiding. You're running 100 miles, I'm sorry. There's nowhere to hide. You know, mile 65, you know, when I actually want to quit during a race, because I do, I want to quit. I, but that's the point I want to get to. And it's hard to explain to people, but I crave, I have the need to get to the place in an event where I, where I cannot go any farther and then figure out how to go farther. Because how is that any different than um, a business that you're running or a movement that you're starting? Yeah. How many times do you reach a point where you are certain, screw this, I cannot go any farther, I can't do this anymore, I can't deal with these people, I can't whatever. But then you go to bed or you whatever and you get up the next day and you're like, all right, you know, let me keep moving forward. That's where you really see where you're made of. I mean, yeah. I feel like, yeah, 100%. Without like, that, how would you know? <laughs> yeah, you know. Right? Yeah. People are like seeking comfort. And I, I always, I say it all the time. Like, what, what did comfort ever get you? Yeah. Like, literally, what did comfort ever get you? Anybody from a, a lesson standpoint. We're not, you and I are going to get to the end of our days and talk about how easy things were. Yeah. You know, we're going to talk about the struggles personally and globally that we hopefully had a voice in and did something about and I damn sure don't want to get to the finish and, and sit there and evaluate the contribution I've made and go, eh, could have done better. Yeah. You know? Regret. I mean that's no. that's the biggest that's it's, the biggest thing I fear of yeah. is, is making it to the end. I often think about, you know, maybe you've done this exercise as well, but the, the sort of model eulogy and like what will be in sharp relief in your final yeah. phase and for me I'm like I've, I've always been clear I'm it's not I'm not gonna be missing you know I have no desire to own a Lamborghini or I don't have, yeah. have any of those like traditional but for me it's like who are the quality people that I shared life yeah. with what were the yeah. who are the people I loved deeply how did I show up in that love and what were the experiences we shared together yeah. and and hopefully 
what was the contribution I made that left the world a little bit of a better place. Yeah. And I, I love that you said, and yes, none of that really comes from, you know, retreating into yourself and being comfortable. Yeah. Well, you're on a good path for all of that. I would yeah, say. I think well, so. the other thing I say is, you know, on my tombstone, it's almost certainly going to say the guy just wouldn't shut up. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes we loved him more. Sometimes I just wanted to, you know, drown him. Well, but, uh, that, that's, but that's so, let's talk about that. So that there's an underlying tenacity, which it sounds like at first what was, if you will, personified in, in its shadow aspect in your addiction. Like mm -hmm. you sound like you were the best drinker. It, yeah. I mean, not that that served you, but you were you were hardcore about it, uh, which obviously uh, deteriorated into other self-defeating sort of habits, which you then shifted into theoretically emboldening and, and healthier habits in the form of running. What, do you think that there was a similar mindset involved in both? And if so, because I think people can relate to this, we, I think we have a core nature that's part of our essence, but sometimes, for lack of a better way of putting it, you know, we use it's used for, you know, to feed our shadow as opposed yeah. to feed our, our light. So what, what is that? Do you see that as the same root? Because obviously you're tenacious. There's no yeah. question about yeah. that, and you and you're a man of vision, and you go after what you what you set your mind to. But how did you shift from that part of your mindset being destructive to being constructive? Well, I mean, you, you nailed it actually already, and that is that there's no, um, those first three years that I mentioned, I, I think part of me, what I was trying to accomplish in running every single day, and I don't mean that I went out for a jog, I was at a place where I was partly punishing myself even, like I, I felt badly about myself, about who I had been, about the damage I had done about the lack of any contribution to humankind that I'd made in my view up to that point. And, uh, and I wanted to like beat the addict out of me. To me, that was the enemy at that point. And it took me those three years to figure out that in fact, the addict wasn't the enemy, the, the alcohol was the enemy, the drugs were the enemy, but in fact, the, my addictive nature and my you know, addictive behavior channeled properly, those were all the best parts of me. Like without that, what would I be? Who would I be? Like I wouldn't, I'd be, you know, sitting on a sofa, you know, watching television or, or uh, playing video games. I mean, no, there's anything wrong with playing video games. You know, I mean, that would be, yeah. like I'd be doing nothing meaningful to me if, uh, if I didn't have this addictive personality. So figuring out how to take that and channel it, of course, was the goal. And I mean, look, I don't, you know, I don't know this part of you, but... You're a successful person. We've we've talked about other successful people we have in common. Yeah. Every single one of them, if they're not an addict in the in the drug and alcohol way, they are um, obsessed. Mm -hmm. And obsession, like you, you really cannot be uh, successful. And that doesn't mean financial success. I mean that means even whether it's with your family, with your business, with an athletic pursuit, with trying to um, change humankind and to change minds, yeah. like what you do. Yeah. You can't do that without having an obsessive nature. And the, the, the key is, we started this uh, podcast and I loved seeing what you did. You know, you closed your eyes and you took a deep breath. You know, the key is finding the place to remind yourself that the outcome is not nearly as important as the effort, yes. right? Because just like this, you know, we don't 
you sit on a talk to somebody, even on a podcast, you don't know if it's going to be shit or it's going to be great. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. Really, yeah. even if you've seen them and you think that whatever, you just don't know. Yeah. And that's not that's out of your control, actually, for the most part. Yes. You know, it's and the same is true for your movement. The same is true for anything. I think you know the effort. It it really is true what we tell our kids. What matters is you know how hard you try. Yeah. You know, and then you, you show up. Yeah, show up, give it a good effort. You can't control the outcome. And if your happiness is tied completely to the outcome, like to the what you would term success, yeah. then you're looking at it all wrong. You know, because you can't, it's just not fair. It's not fair to yourself. We can be empathetic and sympathetic to the world and to others, yet. For me personally, the, the most damaging thing I do to myself sometimes is to judge myself too harshly for not quite reaching the mark that I set for myself. 100%. You know, and that's a that's a really difficult, you know, way to be, to put yourself in that position where you're almost like, you know, you oh, well, I suck, you know, I didn't do what I said. Man, I relate to that so, I, I feel like, I think especially if you're, like you said, in some ways, an obsessive person, which um, I think at times in life, and, and perhaps it's true to my nature, I have been obsessive, and when it's channeled for things that are productive, it's it, it can be beautiful, but yeah, it, it can manifest also in destructive ways, and yeah. man, my critic, self-critic is Hell strong, yeah. I mean, it is strong, so quiet, luckily through meditation, I at least, I can now, not all the time, but most of the time, that doesn't mean that I always can ship myself out of it quickly, but now I at least notice it. It's like I'm almost yeah. observing when that critic comes in. Do you yeah. see like, that? You know, I imagine when you're running, you have lots of time for self-reflection. So do you, do you have that experience? Like well, how do you slow that voice? It's self-reflection and it's also, you know, look, I, I, you know, I have feelings. Yeah. You know, I open up something I've posted or whatever and somebody says, you're, you're a, you know, you're a dumbass or an asshole or you're whatever. Like a hundred people can say great things and two people <laughs> bad ones and I'm so... Yeah. I can be so dialed in on this too. And in fact, <clears throat> I like to say this out loud now because, yeah. you know, part of my personal growth mission for me is to start um, not paying attention to those people. And now, look, if somebody has a valid or constructive criticism, I need to be open to hearing that, right? But if it's a personal attack, because either they just don't like me or there are people out there who just, I don't know what happened to them, but they're the really broken ones. You know, mm -hmm. the ones who just simply, for whatever reason, feel like the, their, it's their job in life to criticize other people, yeah. you know? Then I work hard towards finding a way to just set those people aside and focus on the people that love me. Why? We've got so little time here. Yes. Why would we focus on the people who, who hate us and who aren't going to support us and that that we can't support either? It's just, I went through a real phase a couple of years ago after my book came out, quite honestly, where, um, and I wasn't getting a lot of criticism necessarily for the book, but there were a few people who you know, wanted to correct something or wanted to, it's a memoir. All right, <laughs> yeah. it's my friggin' memory exactly. of what happened. You yes. know, and if I wasn't wearing the blue shirt, I was actually wearing the red one that night. I don't give a shit if that's what. If you need to tell me that, that's your problem. Yes. And obviously, there were there were things other than that, but it just it, it was a lesson in 
hitting the delete, the delete button, not only of comments, but also of people. Yeah. You know, I didn't hate them, and I didn't whatever, but it, like if there's, it, you said it in the beginning, you know, and, and, and like you don't want the Lamborghini, which by the way, if someone wants to give me one, that would be okay, sure. and I'll take it, but I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not going to rearrange my life to a, to acquire it. Yes. And I think that's, I, I mean, I know that's what you're saying. You'd rather focus on, you know, the people who want to give you, you know, love and affection and, um, and friendship. Yeah. And just go hang out on the beach or go have a nice meal and, and, and also share in this mission to see injustice, identify it, and do something about it. A lot of people can do the first two things. Not many people can take the step to do the third. So I want to tap into this with you because obviously one of the things, I mean, you've, you've had many, uh, you know, remarkable um, aspects of your life, but one that obviously is a, a, a true profound accomplishment is obviously the crossing of the Sahara. I can, and uh, I'd love for you to talk about that, but I, I'm particularly interested, you made that about something bigger than yourself and your achievement in terms of, as I understand, the origins of water.org were really in um, totally. in in that journey for you. Can you talk a little bit about that? And especially, like, I imagine in those moments of wanting to quit, I mean, I can imagine there must have been some in the 111 or whatever many days it took you. Maybe a few. Oh, yeah. They, where you're like, okay, let's, <laughs> let's uh, pull the cord on this one. Like, how did that, how did that greater why serve you in that journey? Well, I'll tell you this right now, in, in the Sahara Desert, I'm just glad there wasn't a helicopter anywhere because <laughs> had I been able to actually just leave at some point, you yeah. know, I'm, there are a few times I might have done it. Yeah. The problem with quitting in the middle of the Sahara Desert, there's nowhere to go, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's like a five day drive in a truck to get back to somewhere. Yeah. So, and I, and I knew like half a day into it, I'd be going, God, I hate being in this truck. But isn't that actually, it's actually kind of a perfect metaphor for some, for lack of a better term, being in the shit. It's like sometimes the only way, the best way is instead of back or side, it's just through yeah. it. Yeah. Well, and, and just like sobriety, okay, well, let me take a step back before yeah. I go there. Please. So the Sahara came about because after those three years of running, um, in short, I just began to, you know, through some, there was an accidental event where I actually ran farther than I meant to. And I was like, oh, I can actually run farther than a marathon. Yeah. Like. People actually do this. And I figured that out and started running 50 milers and started running 100 milers and then running hundreds of miles across like deserts and jungles and countries. And I, I just, I fell in love with the, anybody who's ever run a marathon knows that feeling of what was your time? Yeah. You know, and, and because that's a thing, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and there comes a point where like, oh, if I ran this time, it was a good experience. If I ran this time, it was a terrible experience. Right. Even though you, same distance, same everything. So I loved the fact when you got into the longer distances, basically nobody cared how fast you went. You didn't care how fast you went, you just wanted to get it done. Yeah. The point was, and certainly some ego involved too, to say there's not would be disingenuous. We all like to feel different than other people. And not better or, or worse or whatever, but just like, that look, so if I tell somebody I run, I ran a hundred miles yesterday, they're like, what? Yeah. You did what? Yeah, exactly. It used to be 25 years ago if I told somebody I ran a marathon over the week and they're like, what? What? Now you say that to somebody, they're like, oh yeah, my grandmother just ran her 38th you know, <laughs> Boston Marathon in a row. Right, right. <laughs> right? And it's not that that's not a great accomplishment, but we, 
you know, we, we, we like to say and do things that, you know, make us feel a little bit different, or I do. Special, yeah. Yeah. And so, anyway, this era came about because I was working as a producer, actually, on Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Yeah. So I worked in television for a while, and and uh, I started telling this uh, story that I was going to be the first person to ever run across this era. You know, I mean, I, I took ownership and possession of this idea, and... The addict part of me really kicked in because when people would tell me that's a ridiculous idea or you can't do that or it's impossible, like every time I heard that, it was like I felt myself digging in a little deeper and that, you know, I'll certainly a little bit of I'll show you along with it had never been done before and yeah. firsts like in the adventure world are really hard to come by. Sure. Like there's just not that many of them out there and so, um, I make a deal with this director who I got introduced to, James Mall, and he had won the Academy Award for Best Documentary a couple years before that. And, I mean, it was amazing. He stood up after this meeting and stuck out his hand and said, I'll do it, and it was like a life-changing moment. And a week later, he changed it again by uh, calling to say that Matt Damon wanted to executive produce and narrate the film. and. You know, ultimately, Hans Zimmer did the score for this film. I mean, it was like... Just a few Academy yeah, Award winners. Eddie Vedder gave us music. <laughs> Wyclef gave us music. Wow. It was like the craziest thing. But, you know, you flash forward uh, like 18 months after that meeting with James Mull, and I'm on the coast of Senegal in West Africa with two other runners and a whole crew of people. There's about 20 of us there. And, like, I I'm just looking around going, uh-oh, like... I have, I have suckered all these people out here to the desert and we're, we're just all going to die, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. no, like we're not, this is, this is going to be tough. And, yeah. um, you know, when the run started and things as they do, when you launch a business, when you have kids, when you do almost anything, you know, the euphoria of the beginning gives way quickly to the, um, chaos and and dismay of of the abyss that you dive into mm. and you know a week or so into that thing we had fallen apart completely and um it's 140 degrees every day it's um my two running mates were both like on ivs uh people had quit on the crew we'd run out of water i mean everything that could happen that we didn't think possible could happen had happened and it seemed like it was going to be a really short, long expedition. And, you know, I had to, I had to take a deep breath and evaluate what was going on and, the, and, the, and try to find a way to push aside the fear. Because I was, I was terrified of the embarrassment that was coming, the humiliation of, like, not getting this done, uh, tons of money, lots of time, lots of energy, you know, and I, I knew... Yeah, it just was, it was bad. And I knew that the issue was, I was envisioning myself, you know, putting my feet in the Red Sea. Mm. You know, I, you know, I, I had been thinking about the glory of the accomplishment um, for far too long, instead of just like sobriety, focusing on one day at a time, mm. focusing on what was right in front of me. And so like on day eight, you know, I got up and I, I focused only on running a marathon like that morning. Like that was my only focus in the world was just to go out and run that marathon. Got to lunch, took a break. I got up again and I only focused on running another marathon before dinner. 
Like, and that, I mean, it sounds crazy and like a lot of running and it is, but by focusing on those tiny, you know, incremental steps, literally, uh, you put the day together yeah. and then you put the next day together and you put the next one together and we slowly began to actually gain momentum and, and get, you know, get across a chunk of this era. And look, your body, we've all worked on big projects, right? Where you're, you're, you feel yourself on like day three, four, five, when you haven't had enough sleep and you're getting exhausted and you're, your patience is running thin, you know, th there is a bounce that happens. If you, if you will just keep moving forward, mm. your body will usually make the adjustment and say, okay, like, I get it. You're trying to kill me. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 it and it will adapt. Yes. So that's what happened out there, and I gave you way too long a story, but basically we made it across the Sahara. It was 111 days, and we basically ran two marathons a day for 111 consecutive days, and before the run began, uh, Matt and I co-founded something called H2O Africa, which as you said, today is known as water.org. And I always like to be super honest about this because uh, it's important to me because it, hopefully it encourages other people. Like you don't need, like I, to, to, to say that I knew that water.org would be born out of this run would be asinine. You know, you have no idea what you have no idea what you're creating when you create something. You know yeah. what you might think you want it to be, <clears throat> but even then you can't be sure. But I I knew that the core of what I was doing was to see whether or not I had it in me to run all the way across the Sahara. There was nothing more like um, glorious than that in my mind. And if I could figure out a way to do good for you know, humankind, at the same time I was doing something I was passionate about, why wouldn't you do that? Yes. So, we, we, we started to Africa and today, I mean, water.org has passed a billion dollars in funding and it's the world's largest and most successful clean water nonprofit. And it all was born out of this crazy idea, you know, with, with Matt and there's another guy named Gary White who really is the he runs the foundation. I mean, he's the man. Tar Heel, by the way. I'm a, I'm a UNC yeah, Tar Heel, so he is also. <laughs> and uh, and you know, and he's an amazing guy, and he's driven, and he was driven in the water space long before you know Matt and I sort of joined. And then I introduced them, and they've they've you know I was on the board for a while, and yeah. and certain things happened in my life, and I was no longer on the board, and. Um, you know, but I, I take great pride in the fact that that's the case and that nobody, you know, the people who are getting the benefit of that clean water, they don't know me. Yeah. They don't know, they probably don't even know Matt. Like, I mean, it's just, you do that kind of thing in hopes that you can make a difference. And I think we did. Uh, you, yeah, clearly you did. And I think that's really, it's really quite powerful what you say in regards to, you had a particular vision there's so much to distill down, but you had a vision that you declared before it was even reasonable to think it could be accomplished. In that vision, you enrolled, which was really was totally unreasonable and way bigger than you. And I can relate to that because when we when when we decided to global citizen, it was totally unreasonable. Um, but what happened?
happens is when you declare that large vision, the world comes up to greet you with some incredible people, which it sounds like is exactly the case of what happened with you with Matt Damon and a variety of Academy Award winners on the filming side, which then, as you said, it's not your, t it's, 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 it's not your total responsibility to know what's going to happen in the end, but it is your responsibility, I feel like, to heed the call within and, and to know totally. that once you start the process, as you say, of segmenting, stacking one thing onto the next, one day onto to another, that sights unseen, you know, fates unknown will start to manifest because other people will join in that that journey. I think it's so so beautiful, and it reminds me. Did you ever watch Touching the Void? Oh yeah, yeah, I love that. Freaking out. <laughs> I read the book first. Yeah, I still my leg still hurts. Yeah, I exactly. got fallen, you know. It's but like... you, what you said, you didn't like evoke that for me. I was just like, man, like yeah, yeah like what you like that guy. For those who don't know that are listening, you can watch the movie or read the book. Yeah, but read the book. But basically, you know, he you know, he broke his leg, was left for dead, and the way that he, with his femur literally broken, was able to get down, even unknowing that he, even when he got down, there would be anyone to drive him out was stacking that 10 feet in front of him. So it sounded like you did a very similar uh, thing um, and stacked two marathons a day on top of each other in 140 degree heat, I mean, 111 days in a row. Who knew Africa was that big? <laughs> I, should have done, I should have done more research. <laughs> well, I love what you said a second ago about, and when I was way younger, even before I got sober, I think I read um, Paulo Coelho, you know, yeah. The Alchemist, Alchemist, which everybody knows this book, right? And it is, but it's the, um, however it goes, you know, if you, if you, if you believe in something strongly enough, like the world will conspire to help you make 100%. it happen. Yes. And if you don't believe it, and if you're waiting for other people to like knock on your door and give you your vision, then, you know, don't waste your time. Yes. You know, and, and I think that that's an important, it was an important lesson for me personally. And I, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people have these same thoughts, probably have brilliant ideas and, and huge hearts and great desire to go out and help, but something stops them. Yes. You know, and I, and I, I say to those people too, you know, if you, if you don't, for the time being, if you don't think you have the vision that is the right one, then join somebody else's vision for a while. Yeah. Get your feet wet do good in the world and the right time will manifest. Yeah, I agree. And I think what's also, you know, it's such an iterative process. You know, I imagine when you, whatever vision you had of put, dipping your feet into the sea, and which obviously in some ways that holding onto that particular vision of the end looking a certain way, it, was, it sounded like almost held you back and then you got mm -hmm. into like yeah. seeing it more as an iterative process. I feel like we've been almost conditioned to see success as this destination that looks a certain yeah, way. Yeah. I, I don't I at least not as an on social on impact entrepreneur and with some of the friends I know, it never looks the way you think it's mm -hmm. gonna look. hundred percent. Ne never. So it's always but but it is about, and to your point earlier about critique and other people's critique, it is about putting yourself on the field, right? And yeah. and I love that quote where it's, you know, it's not the critic that counts, but it's you know, you being yeah. being on the field. And in being on the field you know, there might be people in the stands that can think whatever they want, 
but everyone's got their field, and I think it's like how does how can everyone get on the field, and then you figure it out once you're on the field, yeah. you know, a few yards at a time. Yeah. Well, by the time I got to the red the Red Sea, in fact, my feet just really hurt. <laughs> Putting my feet in the water wasn't even something I desired. By that time, like, like, this salt water didn't feel oh my god! I'm just like, let's just get this over with, please. Yeah. Well, and I mean, actually, I, I, I rarely talk about this, but I think this is a I think this is a really valid point for this moment, and that is, um, I'll ask a question of myself for you. Yeah. Like, how did it feel when you finished this era? Yeah, I did it. Right? And so people assume that it's like, woo, yeah, we're done. Yeah. Right? Thank God I got that done. Right? And instead, it was like a, a deep and almost crushing sadness, you wow. know, to be, to be done, to have finished something. Like, it was finished. Like, that was it. Yes. You know, the memories of it still go today and they always will but and I get to keep talking about it but like I was so desperate even to to do this thing and to finish it and then to have it over was difficult to reconcile somehow yeah you know because I mean that I knew that period of my life was done I could turn around and run back the other way and it still wouldn't be the same yes and to hearken back to addiction, I love talking about this with the right people. I rarely bring this up because I think it takes the right audience and everything else. You know, I believe around addiction and around a lot of things, we spend our lives chasing, you know, firsts. You know, that first high that I had from, you know, real drug high from cocaine, I basically spent the next 12 years trying to accomplish that exact same feeling. But you can't. Because your body is never the same, your mind is never quite the same. So it takes more. If you do accomplish it in some way, it takes more. Mm. It's not just drugs. It's it's love. It's sex. It's your. It's a car. It's a job. It's yeah. a, like there's these first feelings that are filled with endorphins and energy and youth and whatever there might be that um, we we love how, running. I tell people all the time when you're running your first marathon. Try to be present. Try your best to be there. You know, breathe it in, soak it up, whatever cliche you want, and and be present in the moment, even the really bad moments of it, because mm. those you will remember this forever, mm. and it will be kind of the template. And you can go, you know, by the time you do your second or your fifth or your twentieth that feeling of newness is worn off. Now you've got new goals. Maybe you're trying to go faster or you're just trying to go to a different location or you're whatever. Yeah. Um, but it's not ever the same. And, and it's really hard for us and me anyway, to be fully present in, um, in a new moment and to appreciate the fact that this is something I never get to do again for the first time. And the feelings associated with that are um, singular. Yes. By de by definition. So powerful because I think so many of us live in this notion of our construct of what that achievement will be, right? Like I can imagine, like you're ostensibly what you what you've achieved first, right? And you had the, like you said the ecstasies, the ecstatic experience of mm -hmm. that first, and then you were ch always chasing that ecstasies as opposed to. Really what it is, is it, it occurs to me, is that process of who you become, your becomingness, 
in the on the way to that ecstatic moment mm -hmm. that, that actually is really the that's more the fulfillment aspect yeah. of the formula it is the journey isn't it? <laughs> it is yeah Damn it. it is they so, were right yeah so my question <laughs> then is is okay so if you have that ecstatic moment and then it led to that sadness mm. right how did you find how did you find your way back did you automatically declare I mean, i'm sure there was a journey for you after that right like Sure. And I, I imagine many Olympic athletes have this, right? You oh, train your gosh, whole yeah. life, you get a gold medal, imagine. or you don't, or you miss out on the gold medal, and you mm -hmm. replay that 0.8 seconds for the rest of your yeah. life. How do? Uh, actually, I'm going to share this story because I think it's valuable for people listening. There's, um, you know, you accomplished something that's never been done before. I I can say from my own experience in life, you know, if you want, if you have a success, team success that's you know sort of huge. There's like that that uh, that it's like having a hit album, and it can be debilitating. Mm. You can actually be like, well, whatever I do, it's not gonna be as big as that, so why do it, right? There's yeah. a woman, uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, uh, author. I don't mm, know if you read sure. her book, Big Magic. Yeah, for sure. But what I loved about that book was like, you know, she wrote Eat, Pray, Love, which yeah. I don't know how many copies she sold, but let's just say hard yeah. to replicate. How do you follow that? <laughs> exactly. How do you follow it up? And actually, I took a lot of solace in that because what she did was she was like, write a cookbook, you know, right? Dude, just go totally to the <laughs> yeah. side, like do something yeah. like you have no expectations around because it's again, it's a version of that iterative process, right? You're putting yourself yeah. back on the field. Yeah. So how did you put yourself back on the field after, yeah. after the sorrow? Well, I ran across the United States <laughs> <laughs> and failed miserably. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Tell I me about that. I really difficult, no, I had a really well, difficult, I was trying to set a record for the fastest crossing ever. So. No one had ever crossed the Sahara, but tons of people have run across the United States yeah. through, throughout time. I mean, hundreds, not tons, but... Um, and I decided that I wanted to go after this long-standing record. And honestly, I... You know, there's reasons, whatever. They, I, I like to think of them as, as excuses, but um, I ended up like starting the run with MRSA, I had a staph infection, I had like, it was just, it was a bad situation and like 17 days into it, I was running 72 miles a day for 17 straight days, but I needed to do that for 45 days to break the record and, you know, I fell apart, fell apart completely and couldn't, you know, I had injuries, I had tendonitis that was, that was going to lead to a long-term permanent injury, and, you know, and Short of short of that, I will pretty much continue to drag myself along, you know, no matter what. But um, you know, it was in my ankle, and it was cutting off blood supply to my foot, and so all my toes were numb. And like, if I had chosen to run the next twenty-five days and, and try to continue, it would have been uh, it would have been bad. Interestingly, United Way was actually my my partner, my nonprofit partner for that run, mm -hmm. and. When I had to stop, I had another guy running with me, and he was able to continue at least running. So we were making a film, and so the project continued. But so instead of running, I, I biked. I was able to cycle, so I just biked. But we weren't really that didn't become part of the film because it doesn't make didn't make sense. Mm. But what it allowed me to do was visit. I was doing it in in conjunction with all of these special needs schools across the country that I was too busy trying to run 72 miles a day to actually stop and talk to anybody. Hmm. And so once I stopped running, all of a sudden I was stopping at schools. So I probably stopped at 20 schools along the way to actually talk to 
kids in wheelchairs and on crutches and who had MS and who had, you know, whatever. And it changed my life. You know, so again, it once again, it, it was not by any stretch of the imagination what I wanted or what I expected. But, you know, I, I do like the saying, you know, the, in this case, the, the universe you know, did for me what I couldn't do for myself. Wow. Isn't that humbling? See, I often feel like the, the obstacle is the way in this instance. What, what did you garner? What, what insights did you garner from these kids as you as you talk to these kids who are dealing with these profound challenges? Simple insight. Yeah. They could give a shit if I was running. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Because yeah. these kids were just like happy I was there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, and they were they were so, you know, I mean, it was so crazy. They just were they just were thrilled to have me come through as a thing. Yeah. You know, they'd been anticipating me coming and. Running, biking, walking in, whatever. I would come into their auditorium, or I would, I would show up and get to you know push kids in their wheelchairs around the track, and everybody was just, you know, happy. And and it's this idea too, and I, I think people, you know, people forget so often about you know, whether it's volunteerism or whatever. You know, we still have prison to talk about, which we'll we'll keep we'll keep yeah. short and simple, but. There's this idea that when you go and do something for somebody that you're actually giving, and yes, you are, but it is so true that what you're receiving is a thousand times more. What I got from those kids during that crossing of the United States impacted me forever. I have no idea if they remember me, but I remember them. And, you know, I remember being humbled by not being able to continue running, but um, but having the, I don't know, it wasn't pride necessarily, but just, yeah, just being, it was like I, my insides have been scraped out. Mm -hmm. I think it's the best way to look at it visual, visually. It would be gross, but you know, like I'm empty inside. Mm -hmm. I felt like a failure. I felt empty. I felt like I had let a lot of people down, including myself, blah, blah, blah. And you know, I'm just in my own shit yeah and I go into these schools and I meet these kids and it's like boom they just filled up all of that empty space yes. immediately with you know with love and compassion and just acknowledgement and let me give that to them too and man it was just it was some of the best days of my life you know during what arguably was my most public athletic failure ever so powerful. Um, you mentioned and referenced, which I imagine um, would would also be something that you would receive big lessons from uh, your experience in prison. Mm. Can you share a little bit about going from? Because I think what what's also powerful for me about this story is, I think so often the narrative that we're told is like, is is this kind of traditional hero's journey, right? Of like you go, then you there's like a descendence before the ultimate transcendence, and like the movie ends, you know? Yeah. But most people actually, it's like, okay, it's like this, you know? Yeah. And so, so to, to, to tell us, I, 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 be, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's refreshing to hear about, okay, hang on, you have this penultimate moment, but then also, hang on, there's another, there's another low, but from that, as I understand, there was some real rich value. Totally. Please share. Well, I mean, it is, it is this, we are on this never ending roller coaster yeah. and, and, 
we'll talk in a minute about my next project, which exemplifies that totally to the to the greatest degree. Yes. But you know, I mean, I honestly the details are boring. People always want to know why, you know, what happened with this prison thing, and I don't blame them. I would ask the same question. But in short, the Sahara put me on the map, mm -hmm. and being put on the map isn't always a good thing, mm -hmm. you know. And so I was on. Jay Leno and I was on the morning news shows and NPR and this and that and and I uh, got a lot of speaking gigs and my profile went up certainly locally in small town North Carolina yeah. you know in, in that little pond I became if not a big fish at least a at least an identifiable fish sure and uh, you know one guy out there uh, a particular IRS agent actually saw me and Instead of being um, admiring in any way, he decided that he wanted to see how I was paying my taxes. And after a lot of investigation, he figured out that I was paying them well. Like that was, there was no, 25 years of being self-employed, I always paid my taxes. And uh, instead of giving it up then, he, he did some deeper digging. And, you know, I will never know the reason necessarily. You know, maybe I took his parking space at the grocery store, I mean, whatever, but... Long and short of it is, I ended up becoming the only person at the time in the U.S., the only borrower to be charged with allegedly overstating income on a home loan application. From 2005, during the, the heart of our financial shenanigans in this country, yeah. where basically if you had a pulse, you could get a loan. Yeah. And um, I sort of became the, you know, the poster child in a way for... Um, you know, the government at that time, and look, I was a, you know, good, good liberal Democrat, but, um, you know, they were kind of looking for somebody to blame, I think, and um, due to my profile and my lack of money, <laughs> you know, I was the perfect, I was the perfect guy, because I didn't have enough money to defend myself, because seriously, in the U.S., if you're, you know, if you're indicted with federal charges, I mean, if you don't have a half a million dollars, you're not even finding an attorney to take your case. So you will have a public defender, period. Most people don't know that. Like, there's, nobody will take your case against, against you know, the feds. Wow. And so um, I fight these charges, and ultimately, you know, in a trial, and I lose, and I'm sentenced to 21 months in federal prison. And on Valentine's Day, 2011, um, you know, I report my, my two teenage sons who are devastated and, you know, I mean, it just, it, it, that kind of thing doesn't just destroy the person, it destroys everyone around them. Yeah. And uh, in every imaginable way, I mean, the side effects couldn't possibly be worth whatever payoff <laughs> supposedly is coming out of, out of having, um, tried and convicted someone but you know on that day they dropped me off and um, I was scared and I was pissed mm. you know I was pissed yeah, about sure. what had been done to me I was pissed that about how unfair it was and what was me and it took me about a day to figure out that uh, I wasn't gonna make it mm. like if I was gonna keep that attitude I wasn't gonna make it and fair or unfair no longer matters it didn't matter. It didn't, you know, whether it was just or unjust didn't matter. All that mattered was who was I going to be in this place? Yeah. And what was I going to do with it? Because, what a reckoning. Because it was going to kill me. I mean, I, I, I could feel it. Like, yeah. And, you know, and, and I did what I always do. I started running. Yeah. 
And I ran in the rec yard every day, and if I couldn't run out there, I ran in my cell for four or six or eight hours at a time sometimes, in place, wow. in one spot. And people thought I was nuts, you know, which in prison isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, <laughs> yeah, sure. middle-aged white guy. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, um, you know, and, and slowly but surely, and I, I like to think that I, I know from talking to you and looking at your work, I think you feel this way too. You know, there's a there's an old premise that kind of is like um, attraction rather than promotion. You know, if you live your life a certain way and are honest to that, it, it will attract certain other people. Yes. And the second you flip it around and are always telling other people what they should do or how they should live, normally that backfires. And so what I, especially in prison, <laughs> so, hey dude, you look like you lose some weight, you know, why don't you come run with me? Not a good plan, no, not a good plan. Not. And so slowly but surely though, guys started coming up to me and saying, hey, you know, can you, can I run with you? Can you show, can you teach me how to run basically? Yeah. And when I got there, there were a handful of guys running and, and by the time I left, I had, I had 50 guys in my running group and I had, you know, another like 25 of them doing yoga with me a few days a week. Yeah. and. You know, in federal prison, there's no, um, you know, there's no drug treatment in federal prison, zero. You know, they have what they call a drug education program, which essentially says, you know, if you've got a 20 year sentence for some drug charge, 19 years, they'll put you in a class that basically says, you know, you're a piece of shit, you're a burden to your family and society, don't do drugs. You know, that's it. So okay. there's, there's no, so I started teaching basically, you know, drug classes, you know, classes on addiction recovery. And, and um, I don't know if I changed anybody's life, but again, as I was saying earlier, I, I did all those things. These guys all thanked me when I left and they were so like grateful. And I'm like, dude, you're welcome, but trust me. That got me through this experience yeah. by by giving and and the old saying um, to keep it you have to give it away. Mm -hmm. I've always loved that because like anything that you value, like whatever it is about you or anything else, if you have a, a a gift or a characteristic or whatever it is, if you if you're not giving that away freely to other people from time to time at least, then you know you're robbing them and yourself from having that experience. Oh, so true. So I ended up in prison, you know, and then I got out, Yeah. you know, and here I am. And I just, I basically just continued this path of running and of, um, you know, it's another one of those interesting lessons too. You can't, defending yourself, like what I said today here, like that's the, that's the greatest length I'll ever go to, to like defend myself. Yeah. Cause I don't really care. It's yeah. my, people are going to think what they're going to think. You know, I did it, I didn't do it, whatever it is that is supposedly, you know, being done. What matters to me is where I go from here and... And how you show, I mean, I would imagine even with, so to me, when you're in prison, no one's watching, no one's no. watching, there's no cameras on, right? Mm. What did you do? How did you show up? And you didn't do this because you were going to write a book about it after. You chose to channel your energy to support people in there. And I feel like what you said was really valuable because I can imagine your anger would have been profound but it's like and I I think if many of us can relate you know we go through moments where we feel unjust things totally. have happened to us and we feel angry I can relate to that personally um, and you can either frankly wallow in the 
mm -hmm. shit of it, or you can focus out mm -hmm. and focus out. The quickest way to get out of your own way is to focus out on other people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so, I think one, that's really powerful. And, and two, sort of analogous to that, I think, is gratitude, right? Like, you know, it's so oftentimes that we can get into the, in any, in any situation be angry and it's not to say you should bypass your anger i think there's there, there can be healthy expressions of anger as a as a as an educational tool within yourself of like what needs work but totally but at the same time i think you know it's like when you double down and are grateful no matter what your circumstance just or unjust mm -hmm. and can focus out on that positive i mean i just have just seen in my own experience a gentleman but in haiti by the name of wilfred who just like totally struck i was there right after the earthquake mm -hmm. volunteer and lost his leg and he literally carried his leg for seven days. I mean, at that point, obviously, gangrenous. Um, and I met him in the hospital, and he was—I was there with him the day he got his new leg. And as a as a runner, I mean, I can imagine you—you—you you, you probably understand this value as much as anyone, if not more so. What was amazing is so many people were dealing with that reckoning of the unjustness of this situation, right? Like of losing a, a limb, which will you know be gone forever. He actually—and I took such a lesson from this—he actually saw the gift in it. I literally, he was, the joy on his face when he received his prosthesis. <laughs> this man literally started yeah. kicking a soccer ball, break dancing, uh, winds up starting a soccer league for, for uh, amputees. Oh my God. He winds up, the U.S. government flies him over to train uh, returning veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan on how to play soccer, and he turns wow. his welding skills into making prosthesis for kids who lost their limbs. So anyway, I use that as an example because it was <laughs> invoked for me of just like, you know, you can wallow in it, or uh, this, whether just or unjust, it's like, but you focus out, and and, and I think new opportunities unfold. And so, yeah. I, I'd love to bring it back because I, I'm so moved by what you're doing next. Yeah, can you share a little bit yeah, about yeah. this project? Totally. So, I mean, this this uh, long series of highs and lows that we've discussed here today <laughs> yes. uh, is is uh, manifesting in a literal sense uh, because I've planned for a long time to go from. Uh, the lowest place on the planet, which is the Dead Sea and Jordan, to uh, the top of Mount Everest, which of course we all know is the highest point on the planet. And so it is a, a literal journey from lowest to highest to go along with my, my figurative one of, uh, you know, having so many highs and lows. And I think we all have them, and I, I think everyone can relate to this idea. Yeah. And I always say, don't, you know, <laughs> don't make big decisions when you're really down or you're really up, because neither of those times is actually real. Yes. Right? We spend most of our time, in that, and 99% of the time even, in that sort of yeah, that middle ground, where we are wallowing occasionally, and it feels good for a minute. Totally. And then we're like, yeah, I'm going to go get it, and you know, and... It's it's just this this long roller coaster. So this journey will be one that is um, it's another mechanism for storytelling. I mean, the, the other thing that I recognized a long time ago, just like with the Sahara, is nobody wants to see me run 50 miles. Nobody wants to see me. I mean, once you get past the initial idea of something, yeah. I'm going to go 4,500 miles from the lowest to the highest. I call the project actually 5.8 because even though it's 4,500 miles, it's actually only 5.8 vertical miles wow. from the lowest to the highest. And we all live in this little 5.8 mile vertical space, yeah. a tiny sliver of atmosphere. Every human being on the planet lives there. And so it's more about storytelling. It's about, 
encounters. You know, I look around this place of yours, and what I see are, are, are faces and bodies and people and, um, you know, every one of those, because I, I already know you well enough to know that every one of them has a story. 100%. And, and you know, those are the stories that I want more of. Yeah. And I want to be able to encounter people out there, hear their stories, let them hear mine. Um, I'm doing this, uh, I'm doing this thing with a, a friend of mine named Andre Kylik, and Andre is um, a double amputee. Um, wow. You know, as I like to, I give him, uh, I, I joke with him a lot. I say, you know, I, I lead with Andre has no legs. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he's an amazing athlete who got into a terrible accident in his 20s and literally got run over by a train Whoa. and lost both legs and like his life was over. Like, his life was over. And around the world, somebody with his injuries would have either been dead or tucked away in a home or a corner somewhere never to be seen. Andre won the Hawaii Ironman World Championships, you wow. know, a few years ago in the disabled division. Andre hand cycled across the United States last year, 250 miles per day for 12 consecutive days on a hand cycle, going like this in a, in a race, Ram Race Across America, and the first person ever to accomplish that. And so the story is not, you know, an able-bodied person helping a disabled dude. The story is just two buddies yeah. going out to do this thing and talk to each other, talk to other people along the way. Um, we, we have founded another nonprofit called We Are One Village, which will actually be under a recently acquired umbrella um, of green.org, mm. which is, I'm very excited about this. Yes. You know, I'm thrilled to have been part of the creation of water.org and green.org is going to be uh, the next iteration of what I think will be a really um, a new way of, of helping people who need it in a variety of ways. It's not just water, it's not just food, it's not just poverty or violence, it's, it's everything dependent upon the location around the world and what's going on in that particular area, mm -hmm. United States included, yeah. you know, that we will get involved in through, through We Are One Village to try to create opportunities for people to make their lives better. Incredible. So, you know, it's just another little project. I can't wait. I can't wait to follow along. <laughs> I'm doing the first one. I should actually say the first one being I'm not just doing Dead Sea to Everest. I'm actually doing, we're doing this on all seven continents. Oh, wow. So it's lowest highest on all seven continents. And the first one, uh, I realize these are timeless episodes, but... Um, for those people listening, I would be remiss in not at least saying. Please. Yeah, how can we follow you? Yeah, so just charlieingle.com or 5.8project.com. Charlie Engle on all my social media and all of that is the easiest way to sure. find the book, the movies, the everything. Yeah, which by the way, if you haven't oh. gotten a copy oh, yet, well, look at that. We just happen to have one. <laughs> <laughs> no, you brought me very graciously, and I'm very appreciative of it, a signed copy, which uh, this story is incredible. So thank you. Thank grab you. a copy. Yeah, I appreciate it. But we're starting the first one in uh, in about two and a half months. Yeah. So in June of 2019, which is right now we're at the end of March, uh, sitting here in this moment, and um, the journey will begin then. And people can actually follow, they'll be able to follow along live a lot of the time. We have some technology along that'll be cool. And, and 
uh, if anyone hears this and wants to come join us on Mount Kilimanjaro, they should reach out to me also. Beautiful. Maybe you want to go. <laughs> I'm, I'm open uh, to it. Actually, so I interviewed Wim Hof. And, uh, and well, he, Wim, was at, he was where I just was oh, for three days. Oh, he was in town. Yeah, yeah, okay. Indeed. Yeah, great guy. We had, a, we, had a, we, had an, we had an epic like this, epic interview. But he was, at the end, he invited me to train, so we did the cold plunge. Oh, yeah. and then How was that? And, well, the cold plunge I'm familiar with. I mean, it was yeah. it was an awakening. I'm just yeah. saying, you know, you Indeed. had to put your, your head under the water in fr <laughs> freezing cold water. But then we're we're like in a squat position doing his sort of Wim Hof yeah. movement, right? Mm -hmm. And his vision was, you know, the guy's broken like 27 world records mm -hmm. for cold therapy. He was like, let's go up Kilimanjaro in our shorts mm -hmm. um, in a month. And he, but he wanted to bring, and I think this is still part of his vision. I just think they they decided to delay the date. We wanted to go up Kilimanjaro in a shorts with people um, sort of battling certain mental challenges to okay. show that it was feasible on the mental and physical side. So I'm going to follow along on that journey as well. But I, I chose not, to, I couldn't, timing-wise, couldn't do that. But I'd be very interested to learn more about your Kilimanjaro journey. So what, where do we find, is that also on Charlie? It'll be Park? there, right? Yeah, right there. So. Right. Yeah, well maybe I'll get maybe maybe I'll get Wim Hof to come. Uh, <laughs> yes, you should. <laughs> I know our Kyle Maynard did a beautiful set to that. Yeah, uh, yeah let's. I I'd love to support it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's it's going to be an adventure for sure, and one that I'm, uh, you know, I'm fired up about, and I'm yeah. I'm ready. You know, I chose something that has seven different continents. That way, the sadness that came at the end of the Sahara, I just you know, it'll take me a long Keep time going. to get there. I mean, what a, what a yeah. good strategy. Just keep, keep keep the goal keep the goal so big that you're always striving for it. Exactly. I love it. Yeah. Charlie, it was hey, such a pleasure, man. Really fantastic. Yeah, that was I really fun. enjoyed it. Thank you, brother. Fun. Thank you. Yeah. Enjoyed it. All right. I think that's great. All right. <laughs> I really love it. I have to tell you something funny. Yeah, tell me. I, you know, I've been in TV production for a while, off and on, yeah. and I heard that camera close. Oh, you did? At about... What, wait, at when? 30 minutes or what? Not even. 25 yeah, minutes. Five minutes? Oh, man. And I almost, I almost stopped and told you, like, my, my brain heard the thing close, yeah. and I was like... Nah, yeah, it's fine. We got plenty going no, on. No, we here, got so. yeah. Th this one, this one actually this is kind of a bonus round. Part. Yeah, this is this is the designated on you. Yeah, and that's the wide. It'd be nice if there's a designated on me, but it doesn't really matter. Yeah, but it's yeah. also 4K, so they can pull out. They can just they oh can nice. Pull in. Yeah, very good, very good. But yeah, no, I think dude, you did great. Thank you, brother. You're really good at this. Yeah, I love it. It's, well, that uh, was a conversation. I mean, I, look, I talk about a lot of the basic things quite often, of course, but. You know, not many people are, are, I don't know if they're not willing or they're not interested in diving into some of the other, because I like the mental aspects of it. I like the whys. Me too. The purpose behind a lot of it is way more interesting than the nuts and bolts of, of what it was. So. Well, that's the, that's the essence of, to me of like what I want to, because your story is so powerful in terms of, to me, the mindset, right? Like. Mm -hmm. But the mindset principles that other people can apply in their own life, like that to me is the juice. Yeah. And, and, no doubt. And, and frankly, like, prison or not prison, I maybe get tired about that. But I, I feel like, for me at least, coming from Global Citizen, like, mm -hmm. it, that was my own Sahara. Yeah. And it was like, and now I'm recreating myself. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, even with this podcast, I'm embarrassed to admit this. I recorded some of these episodes three years ago. Yeah. And I yeah. felt like it was such a small, uh, like, I went yeah. from Global Citizen, I'm doing a podcast in my living room. Like, you know, and yeah. I'm like, Dude, I, my ego was like, I can't do that. Yeah. And then ultimately, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was at, I don't know if I told you this, I was at a Fleetwood Mac show, and I saw this Tom Petty tribute, and I realized he, I was, Tom Petty, I'm a huge fan my yeah. whole life, 
I was gonna go Give see him. Give me goosebumps, him. right? I was gonna go see him. He passed away. Yeah, I was yeah. like, tomorrow's never promised. No. Doesn't matter how many people show up in the arena. No. It's time for me to sing my song. No. I mean, it really is. Like, if you affect one person, I mean, or or, or ten or a hundred or whatever it is, then then that's what you were supposed to do. Yeah. It doesn't have to be ten thousand at one time. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Charlie Angle. I know that I did. Absolutely inspiring to see someone go from the highs and lows of life and from the deep depths of addiction into, um, you know, completing one of the more inspiring firsts on the planet to run across the Saharan desert. And now he's applying that to go from the lowest to the highest point on earth. Quite a metaphor. Uh, If you enjoyed the episode, please go ahead and leave us a, uh, a review on iTunes means the world to me. Uh, It also helps us to grow the community and move up in the algorithm. Uh, Your ratings and reviews uh, mean a great deal. You can always uh, leave me feedback, share where you're listening to the episode, tag Charlie Angle and at Michael Trainer on Instagram. Uh, I'm very active there. Uh, And, you know, always feel free to go ahead and leave us your feedback, your comments. Uh, I'm, I'm, open and wanting to receive info from you guys and to create this show in a way that's of greatest service to you. So thank you so much for listening. And without uh, saying any more, please go out there and live your inspired life.